I'm going to take away the image of Scotty Greenwood, ice road trucker. I think that's uh, that's the takeaway for me. There you go. In an electric vehicle, no doubt. Of course. <laughs> Welcome to Canusa Street, a podcast at the intersection of the issues and policies between Canada and the United States. Here are your hosts, Scotty Greenwood and Chris Sands. Welcome back to Canusa Street, everybody. I'm Scotty Greenwood with the Canadian American Business Council, and I'm joined by my partner in crime, Chris Sands, who is currently working on his audio, but he'll be with us in a second. And I couldn't be more excited today uh, for our recording. Uh, we have one of the, a guy with the world's most interesting job title, the Explorer in Residence for National Geographic, Unrik Zala. And Chris will introduce him properly in a minute, but I have to say, you know, I w- we were talking about Arctic policy, we were talking about climate change, and we were talking about guests that we'd like to invite to the podcast. And we immediately reached out to my good friend, Enric, and he was, of course, traveling the world, as he often is. And so I can't wait to hear about your adventures. Um, and we'll also tell, tell our listeners how we first met. It, it's a Canada-U.S. story uh, that is kind of wonderful. And, uh, and with that, Chris, maybe I've bought enough time for you to give us a proper introduction of our very esteemed guest. <laughs> Thanks very much, Scotty. Um, I know our, our guest is, a, is an explorer. He's used to being more prepared than I am. But we have one thing in common, uh, at least the university professor side. He, he was a university professor. And I, what I love about your bio, uh, Dr. Sala, is you say you were a university professor who saw himself writing the obituary of ocean life. And it motivated you to be more than a professor lecturer, but actually to get involved, to do exploration and to help us understand what was going on. Um, As Scotty said, absolutely, he is an explorer in uh, residence uh, since 2011 at National Geographic, but he's also been a fellow there and, and a grantee. He's an expert on oceanography, marine biodiversity, marine sanctuaries, habitat preservation, biology, and very important these days, bees, which uh, at least uh, for a while we were quite worried about what was happening with the bees. And so all of that, I'll, I'll mind my bees in cues with a cue from Scotty. Uh, I'll, I'll hand back over to her. Thanks, Chris. So Enric and I first met when he was working on a project, Enric, that I hope you'll tell, tell our listeners about, uh, which was protecting the most pristine areas of the sea. And in Canada, uh, that's the last sea ice. And so we met years ago to, uh, to help with that project. And, and uh, maybe you could explain a little bit about that and what you've been doing since, Enric. And welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Scott, it's so good to see you online. <laughs> and nice to meet you, Chris. And it's such a pleasure uh, being with you too, today. Um, we definitely need to get in person sometime soon. Yeah, no, I remember when we met, we were... I, I left academia and came to National Geographic to found this uh, project called Pristine Seas to go around the world and work with communities and governments to protect some of the wildest places in the ocean before it's too late. And one of the areas that were on top of the list was what's called the Last Ice, which is the northernmost parts of the Canadian Arctic Archipelago and the northernmost parts of Greenland. These are the areas where we're going to see the last sea ice in the summer because the projections are that because of ocean warming, by 2040, all the sea ice is going to melt across the Arctic Ocean, except in one place, 
the last place where we're going to have what's called multi-year ice, ice that doesn't disappear every summer, which is the that northern part of Canada. And in the very beginning, I didn't know where to start, <laughs> who I should talk to. So, of course, I was um, immediately uh, reaching out to Scotty for, for help to navigate the, the Canadian landscape. So that was... Uh, that was really exciting. And actually, as you know, the Inuit uh, leadership in the area in Nunavut, they were able to work with the Canadian government to get that place protected. And Prime Minister Trudeau announced it uh, a couple of years ago. And thanks to that, we gave him uh, the National Geographic Planetary Leadership Award. But also to Inuit leaders, we gave them a special uh, recognition for, for their leadership in in Arctic conservation. One of the things, Enrique, it was it was such a pleasure to work with you. I was a volunteer, um, just on the sidelines of that. And uh, one of the things I didn't realize is, you know, when you're trying to protect the wild places and Earth, everybody doesn't immediately agree. And the original cultures don't necessarily just say, "Sure, people, make our make our." ancestral land a national park and protect it they you know so they they have other ideas uh their own ideas uh that have gone down for generations and generations and so when you say the inuit were partners in it that is a huge accomplishment and it's a it's a tribute to your work and your research i want you to listen to the cracking sound i can see the ice it's like a wave moving like a wave if they become too big, it'll begin to break the ice. Then the ice will just snap. In these last years, to be a hunter has become very hard. The old hunting grounds, like where they used to hunt, we cannot reach them. They are just history now. I'll just add one other thing that I think is interesting about the last sea ice, and then we'll talk about what you've been doing since then. And and I'll let Chris get a word in here in a minute, too. He can ask a few questions, but I'm so excited to have you and catch up. Uh, but one of the things about the last ice to melt in the ocean, as you explained to me years ago, that the last sea ice is to Arctic creatures what a watering hole is to other creatures. It's life. It's what they rely on. And, you know, it's funny because when we first met, I was very excited. I had been to Churchill, Manitoba. I had seen polar bears and beluga whales, and I just thought it was spectacular. And you immediately went up to me and showed me pictures that you had on your phone of narwhals <laughs> that were right around the last sea ice. And all of these creatures rely on on the last sea ice. So that was that was pretty fun, pretty great. So so that was a few years ago, Enrique. What have you been doing since then? Well, first of all, I have to say that uh, it was the Inuit leadership and initiative that got that place protected in the same way that they got the Lancaster Sound, Taluritipimanga, uh, protected as a marine conservation zone. And it, it was our privilege to be able to support them um, in some way. And the product that we are most proud of that we contributed with uh, for for this project was our film the last ice 
which is uh, on Disney Plus. If you are, <laughs> if you have access to Disney Plus, it's a beautiful film about the Inuit culture. It's a, a, a film about indigenous rights. It's a film about how global warming is changing the landscape and affecting the cultures and traditions and the livelihoods of Inuit in, in Nunavut and in Northern Greenland. So um, I really recommend um, everyone who's interested in, in the Canadian Arctic to and, or, or, and even Greenland too to watch it because it's, a, it's a, a testament to the wisdom and the leadership of, of the Inuit people. And since then, we've been working with local communities, indigenous peoples and governments around the world to continue uh, helping to protect areas and it's been it's been pretty pretty awesome because i just came back from madeira uh, of portugal where the regional president created the largest no-take marine reserve in the european union so that's the 25th marine reserve that pristine seas has been involved with so we are we're very very happy I wanted to ask you a little bit about that because the relationship between the Inuit and the non-Inuit populations in the U.S. and in Canada is important. But how do you find the government cooperation between the U.S. and Canada? Um, you know, we, we share three oceans. Even the U.S. has an Arctic frontage, but we also have the Atlantic and the Pacific. And sometimes we seem to be cooperating, but I know other times uh, we're, we're moving across purposes. So without necessarily a, a political spin on, you know, Republican or Democrat or liberal or conservative, What's the sense of the U.S.? Do they see themselves in a common enterprise, or are they uh, fighting more often than they should be? What? How would you characterize it? Well, I wouldn't say fighting, but I, I would hope to see more uh, collaboration. Because mm. when you talk to the people who are actually working with the Canadian counterparts, they will tell you that, oh, yeah, there is this ongoing collaboration, which is true. But then there could be much more. For example, Canada mm. has been one of the champion, uh, one of the leading countries pushing for the, a global target for nature, mm. which is 30% of the planet, land and sea, protected by 2030. Um, former environment minister, Jonathan Wilkinson, he was an absolute champion of this, uh, helping mm -hmm. to recruit other countries. And we started with one country, Costa Rica, a couple of years ago at the Climate COP in Madrid. And at this COP uh, in, in Glasgow last in October, 77 countries are already supporting that global target. The U.S. has a domestic target. President Biden has this domestic target of 30% of areas protected or conserved, but it hasn't joined the the global target yet, right? So there, Canada is uh, is moving forward faster, and also the uh, federal government has committed significant funding for feasibility studies for indigenous uh, protected areas, protected and conserved areas but also has committed funding for the implementation and the long-term management. So I would, I would say that the relationship between the federal government and uh, indigenous uh, peoples in Canada, First Nations and Inuit, from what I've seen, is, uh, is quite promising. And actually, we are, next year, our National Geographic Pristine Seas mm -hmm. project is going to conduct a two-month expedition and the Canadian Arctic partnering with four Inuit communities and two First Nations to support them with our science and our filming and our economic work to support their vision to create more of these indigenous marine protected areas. Fascinating. I, I wanted to ask you also, because you're in the research field, 
And, you know, research takes money, sadly, especially if you're doing the scientific research. I think I could probably research more cheaply if I'm just talking to politicians. But in your, um, in your field, how are, how are we doing in terms of research funding and research activity? We've got great universities in Canada and the U.S. There's potential for collaboration, but sometimes the money doesn't cross the border well or there are too many strings attached. What could we be doing to do research together better? Well, <laughs> to do research together better, we still, you know, first we need to improve the research budgets in, in both countries, no period. And especially on this side of the border and in the United States, much more funding is required for, for some important research. And we've seen uh, a decline in funding over the last uh, four years. Hopefully now it's going to increase again. But, um, you know, scientists collaborate all the time. There are hundreds of uh, research papers, if not thousands, published every year in partnership between Canadian and U.S. researchers. And we published uh, a major paper in the science in the journal Nature uh, last March uh, with a global map for priorities for ocean conservation. And we had Canadian co-authors on the paper, for, both from Dalhousie University and University of British Columbia. So there is a lot of research that is already happening that does not require um, big uh, big funding. But of course, if we want to do field work, then this is where we require <laughs> um, a, a lot of a lot of uh, resources, as you know, as you know well. So the collaboration has been on going for many decades, and it's really really strong. But definitely more funding for important things like nature conservation and understanding ways to mitigate climate change, especially in, in the Arctic region, would be much more important than you know, funds that are used for things that are actually not so important for society, but they are, you know, there are very important pressure groups that uh, <laughs> monopolize <laughs> government resources. Everybody needs money. I know how that goes. Anyway, over to you, Scotty. Well, so I just want to go back for a second, Enric. You um, you said you're. I think I heard you say you're going to do a two year expedition in the Canadian Arctic starting next year. Um, two months. Oh, two month, two month. Um, can you when when tell us about that? Where are you going? When does that begin? What are you looking for? Really interested in that. We have been uh, approached by several communities to help support their projects for creation of new marine conservation areas or indigenous marine protected areas. And what we do with Pristine Seas is uh, several things. We do scientific research. So we have a team of marine scientists that do, let's say, a rapid assessments of the health of the marine ecosystem from the surface to the deepest parts of the ocean, from on inshore to offshore. Also, we produce Films, National Geographic. We what you know, for 133 years we've done storytelling. So we uh, produce films of different shapes and, and formats to reach key audiences among these communities, but also among decision makers in in different governments to inspire them to to protect these places. We also conduct economic analysis, valuation of what are the economic benefits that those communities obtain from the ocean right now. And what would be the additional benefits that they could obtain if part of their waters were protected? And finally, of course, we have always done this uh, bridge between the top down and the bottom up 
uh, bridging the central governments with uh, the local community leaders to make sure that the demands from local communities are heard by those who have the final authority to pass legislation to protect these areas. But, you know, in the end, everything we do is to support indigenous peoples and local communities who want to preserve part of their waters so they can continue enjoying them sustainably for the long term. You know, when when I think about um, your work, your life's work, um, you you travel the world all the time. Um, I love your out of office messages when you and I reach out because it's like I'm on an expedition in some place that uh, I can't even pronounce, and it's always amazing. And I love seeing the pictures and the and the work that comes out of it. But I want to ask you in your travels around the world and in what you're doing to protect nature and to protect the pristine seas. Maybe give us one area that worries you the most, one, um, whether it's a geographic area or an issue, and then also one that gives you the most hope, that makes you, you know, the happiest um, from from anywhere at all in the world. Yeah, well, there are two areas that worry me the most. One is coral reefs, because we are seeing death of coral all around the world because of ocean warming and acidification. And the other one is the Arctic, which is warming on average, twice faster than the rest of the world. And there are areas like the Barents Sea that is warming some years four times faster. The sea ice is disappearing so much faster during the summer that affects the entire ecology and, of course, the livelihoods and the cultures of the Arctic peoples. So these are two areas that worry me the most. And in terms of hope, it is every place where an area is protected from fishing, drilling, mining, and and damaging activities, marine life recovers spectacularly. I've seen it with my own eyes. We just came back from an expedition to the Southern Line Islands that belongs to the Republic of Kiribati in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Islands that are protected and inhabited where the corals were absolutely virgin the first time we went there in 2009. But in 2016, there was the most massive warming event in the Pacific Ocean, the most, the strongest El Nino year that killed half of the corals in the most pristine islands during the summer. We just came back. We were there this October, five years after that massive bleaching and coral death. And the reef came back completely. The marine life has an incredible ability to bounce back if we just give it space and, and time. So that's what gives me hope, seeing the, the ability of the ocean to bounce back uh, if we just give it some some space. We recently saw the U.S. Coast Guard ship Healy uh, go on an Arctic journey. And I know that um, it was a it was a joint mission. Canada had some scientific research going on in that vessel as well. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit to the role of sort of the platform for research. Uh, Neither of our countries has very many icebreakers that can operate. Uh, there are some some issues where scientists like yourself will often look for some support or some infrastructure to be able to operate and do their work in the Arctic. How would you say we're fit for um, for operation? And if we were going to invest in things like infrastructure, like icebreakers, these kind of things come up all the time. Where, where could we do the most good? Well, if the U the U.S. is not fit for Arctic work during the ice months, that's clear. Now Russia has forty icebreakers most of the nuclear icebreakers. I've seen a few of them. They are enormous. They are very powerful and effective. 
we have one and uh, I don't know what's the life left on that poor icebreaker. There's been one in the in the books in the budgeted for for years now, but I don't know how this is going. So we are ill equipped to conduct research during uh, yeah outside of the summer in, in the Arctic. And this is something that definitely has to has to improve because the sea ice is melting. So navigation in the summer and shipping is going to become more prevalent. So it's easier to study the Arctic now during the summer. But still, there is so much we need to learn about the processes of when does the ice start to form in the in the fall and when the ice starts to melt earlier and earlier. And for this, you still need ice breakers, right? Mm-hmm. So um, this is an area where there's a huge gap and we are definitely losers in, in the global arena. The, um, the Canada was a big leader in pulling together the Arctic Council, and uh, it's been around now for for a while. Do you think that this multilateral cooperation, and I know there are countries that are members of the council, some are observers, etc. Do you think they've had uh, a collective impact that has been a positive one on the research agenda, the scientific exploration and understanding the Arctic? Or would you say that's mainly a, a economic cooperation, maybe economic development? How, how would you characterize the role the Arctic Council can play or does play? Yeah, I would say both because it is the intergovernmental platform where all Arctic nations sit together and talk. And we know, especially working with, with Russia, the Russians, they um, appreciate talking and discussions and, and negotiation, right? So uh, that platform, every single Arctic country take it very seriously. And I think that it has definitely improved cooperation, not only economic, but that's, you know, that's go- that was going to happen regardless of the platform because businesses always find a way to do whatever they need internationally, right? <laughs> when, when it's uh, good for business, but for, for the political discussion and dialogue and for scientific uh, research for cooperation, I think it's been very valuable. Well, the um, the Arctic Council may be the platform for Arctic Dialogues. Canusa Street is the platform for Canada-US, so I'm really glad to have you here. Over to you, Scotty, uh, to talk about uh, maybe to close us out. Well, thanks, Chris. And and I think I'd like to give the last word to my good friend, Enric, because I have been so inspired by your work over the years. I hope people will uh, check out the, the the movies and the storytelling that you've been so integral to. But let, why don't we why don't we wrap by giving you the last word um, to talk about anything you want to talk about? OK, well, I would like to say I would like to end with a message of hope. You know, we are overfishing the ocean, polluting it with plastic and, and things we cannot see. We are making it warmer and more acidic. Marine life is uh, being degraded all over the planet. But we know what the solutions are. We know that when we protect places, marine life comes back spectacularly and helps to regenerate the areas around. Because we've seen all around the world that these no-take areas increase the abundance of fish on average six times relative to unprotected areas nearby. And that spillover of fish helps to improve the, the fishing, the food security around these areas, especially for coastal communities in developing countries. And also we know that protection of the ocean generates more benefits than the costs. And on average, every dollar that is invested in the management of a marine protected area generates at least $5 in return. That's a pretty good, you know, 500% uh, 
uh, return on investment. That's pretty good. And um, so what we need to do now is to uh, the countries of the world following the leadership of, of Canada and others to agree to protect 30% of the planet, land and sea by 2030, because that's going to help us mitigate climate change. That's going to help solve the nature crisis. And that's going to help preserve our life support system because you know, society is absolutely dependent on a healthy natural world. So thank you so much, Scotty and Chris, for having me on your podcast. It's been great. Thank you so much. And I hope you'll come back after you've had your two months in the Canadian Arctic and tell us what your findings were and share with us some, some stories and some pictures. We'd love to hear all about it. I love that. Right. Better. Why don't you come on the expedition? Don't. I mean, don't. You don't have to ask twice. I'll be there. <laughs> well, we could extend Canusa Street north. You know, that's infrastructure too. So we'll just have it go all the way up, like the Alaska Highway. Yeah, that's right. Canusa Street's going to become an ice road any moment, and we're going to go. We're going to go right up on the expedition. But no kidding. I, you know, um, I love traveling up north. I've led a few delegations. Um, and as again, as I said at the beginning, as much fun as I have with the belugas and the polar bears, I think uh, Enric had, sort of wins with, with his experience of narwhals, which seem like mythical creatures. And to, to see them yourself is, is quite amazing and, and it's inspirational. So with that, thank you so much. As always, it's great to, it's great to gather and talk about these big issues. And, and we really will bring you back, Enric. And may, maybe I'll come back with some stories. I don't know if we can drag Chris up there, but... Uh, Maybe maybe we can. <laughs> I'm going to take away the image of Scotty Greenwood, ice road trucker. I think that's uh, that's the take in an electric vehicle, no doubt. Of course. <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by the Canadian American Business Council and the Wilson Center. If you like this episode, help others find our show and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. <laughs>